on the shortness of life by Lucius Ennius Seneca, translated by Gareth D. Williams, discusses a common complaint of mankind. Most individuals, including Paulinus, grumble about nature's stinginess due to our short lifespan. The time we're allotted passes swiftly, leaving the majority of us yearning for more just as we start to truly live. Surprisingly, it isn't only the masses or the unreflective crowd who express this discontent. Even noteworthy men share this sentiment. Consider this correction, where the text has been broken down into more consumable paragraphs and a minor fix has been made for wasteful of life. Hence that famous dictum of the greatest of physicians, life is short, art long. Hence also Aristotle's grievance, most unbecoming a philosopher. When he called nature to account for bestowing so much time on animals that they can live for five or ten human lifespans, while so much shorter a limit is set for humans, even though they are born to do so many great things, is not that we have a short time to live, but rather that we waste much of it. Life is long enough, and it's been given to us in generous measure for accomplishing the greatest things, if the entirety of it is well invested. However, when life is squandered through soft and careless living, and when it's spent on no worthwhile pursuit, death finally presses, and we realize that the life which we didn't notice passing has indeed passed away. So it is. The life we are given isn't short, but we make it so. We're not ill-provided, but we are wasteful of life. Just as vast and princely wealth can be squandered in an instant when entrusted to a poor manager, so can even a modest wealth grow through careful deployment when entrusted to a responsible guardian. Likewise, our lifetime provides ample opportunities for the individual who plans it well. 2.1. Why do we fault nature? It has been generous. Life, when used wisely, is long enough. However, one person may be gripped by relentless greed, another by a diligence invested in pointless endeavors. Some individuals are drenched in alcohol. Some are lax due to idleness. Some are exhausted by political ambition, always dependent on the judgment of others. Others' burning desire for trade propels them recklessly across lands and seas in pursuit of profit. The passion for soldiering torments some who are either always keen on posing threats to others or perpetually worried about threats to themselves. Some people are worn down by the voluntary enslavement of thankless attendance to the powerful. Many stay busy either pursuing other people's wealth or bemoaning their own. Others who lack a consistent aim in life are constantly tossed from one new plan to another by an unstable and perpetually dissatisfied fickleness. Some individuals have no goal toward which to guide their path, and death catches them by surprise as they idly yawn. Thus, I don't doubt the truth of that profound statement from the greatest of poets. Scant is the part of life in which we live. The rest of existence is not living but merely passing time. Vices besiege and surround us from every side, and they do not allow us to rise again and raise our eyes to perceive the clear light of truth. Instead, they weigh heavily on us, keeping our gaze lowered and fixed on mere desire. It's impossible for their victims to revert to their authentic selves. While they might occasionally find some respite, they still remain restless, akin to the deep sea that continues to swell even after the wind is calmed. They never achieve complete relaxation from their desires. Are you under the impression that I am speaking only of those whose faults are universally acknowledged? Consider those whose prosperity attracts attention. They are suffocating under the weight of their own wealth. 
Many have found their affluence burdensome. Numerous individuals are drained by their eloquence and their constant need to showcase their abilities. Others have lost their vitality due to never-ending indulgence and pleasures. Quite a few are robbed of their freedom by the overwhelming demands of their clients. In essence, examine them all, from the most modest to the most influential. One individual calls for counsel to represent his case. Another responds to the mission. One stands as the defendant, another acts as the defense attorney, and yet another presides as the judge. No one champions his own cause, but instead, each is consumed in the service of another. Inquire about those influential citizens who have taken the time to studiously memorize names, and you'll discern distinct characteristics that set them apart. The first cultivates a relationship with a second, the second with a third. None seem to be their own person. Some individuals exhibit irrational displays of anger, voicing complaints about the perceived arrogance of their superiors, who are too absorbed in their tasks to grant them an audience at their convenience. One must ask, does it seem fair to bemoan another's arrogance when the complainer himself hardly spares time for himself? Despite the indifference, the superior will at times deign to acknowledge your presence, entertain your words, and even permit you to stride alongside him. You have never made an effort to observe or listen to yourself. Therefore, you shouldn't anticipate reciprocation for your attentions, since they were given not out of a desire for another's company, but because you were incapable of communing with yourself. Throughout the ages, all the brilliant minds who have arisen agree on this one point, yet they could never sufficiently express their astonishment at this mental obscurity in humans. No one allows anyone to seize their estates, and if a trivial dispute arises about boundary lines, they quickly resort to stones and arms. However, people allow others to encroach upon their existence, or rather, they even go so far as to invite those who will take control of their lives. You'll find no one willing to distribute his money, yet look at how many people each of us shares our life with. Men are frugal when protecting their private property, but when it comes to wasting time, they are most extravagant. It's one commodity where it is commendable to be greedy. Secondly, I would like to address one of the elders. I see that you have reached the pinnacle of human lifespan. You are fast approaching your hundredth year or more. Now it's time to evaluate your life, calculate how much of your time has been consumed by a moneylender? How much by a lover? How much by a sponsor? How much by a client? How much in arguing with your spouse, in disciplining your servants, in navigating through city social obligations? Add to this the illnesses we have inflicted upon ourselves and also the time that has been idle. You will find that you have less years than you think. Reflect upon and remember a time when you were certain of your purpose, those few days that transpired as you had envisioned, a moment when you were in complete control of yourself, when your facial expression revealed your true feelings, when your mind was free from agitation. Consider what achievements you can claim in your long life. Identify how many have exploited your existence without your awareness of what you were forfeiting. Acknowledge how much time has been squandered on baseless anxiety foolish joy, insatiable desire, and the allure of company. And finally, measure what little time remains from your own reserves. In doing so, you'll realize that you are meeting death prematurely. So, why is this happening? It seems that people like you live as if they're going to be around forever, neglecting the reality of human fragility. 
You do not monitor the time you've already spent wasting it as if it is drawn from an abundant source. Yet ironically, that very day which you give to someone or something else may be your last. You are like ordinary mortals, fearing everything. Yet like immortals coveting everything, often you may hear the proclamation, after my fiftieth year I'll retire to a life of leisure, and my sixtieth year will bring release from all my duties. But what guarantee, may I ask, do you have that your life will extend that long? Who will ensure that your plans can proceed without hindrance? Isn't it shameful to allocate only the remnants of your existence to philosophical thought, only the portion of time that can't be consumed by preoccupations? Contemplating life only at its end is tragically late. What foolish oblivion it is to postpone wise plans until our 50th or 60th year, hoping to embark on life from a point that few have reached. Observe the powerful individuals in high positions, they often express a longing for leisure, praise it, and hold it above all their blessings. They sometimes long to step down from their pinnacle, if they can do so safely, for even without any external disturbance or shock, fortune crashes down on itself due to its own weight. The divine Augustus, to whom the gods gave more than any man, never ceased to pray for rest and sought release from state affairs. Every conversation of his invariably returned to his hope for leisure he would lighten his burdens with the sweet, albeit illusory, consolation that one day he would live for himself. In a letter he sent to the Senate after assuring that his retirement would not lack dignity nor contradict his previous prestige, I found the following words, but such things are more impressive in their fulfillment than in their promise. My deep desire for a time I have long prayed for has led me to anticipate its delight through the pleasure of words given that the joy of that reality is yet to come. Leisure was such a desirable thing that if one couldn't enjoy it in reality, they found joy in anticipating it. The one who believed the world depended solely on him and controlled the fortunes of individuals and nations took pleasure in looking forward to the day he would renounce his greatness. Through personal experience, he understood the effort required for those universal blessings and was aware of the hidden anxieties they concealed. Forced to combat first with fellow citizens, then with colleagues, and finally with relatives, he brought about bloodshed on land and sea. Driven by warfare through Macedonia, Sicily, Egypt, Syria, and Asia, along with many other known lands, he repositioned his weary armies from domestic to foreign wars. As he was pacifying the Alps and subjugating enemies in the heart of the peaceful empire and expanding its boundaries beyond the Rhine, Euphrates, and Danube, individuals like Morena, Kipio, Lepidus, Egriatius, and others were sharpening their swords against him in the city itself. In his waning years, he even failed to escape the troubled intrigues of his daughter and several noble lovers who, bound by adultery, as if it were an oath of allegiance, posed a consistent threat. This included Eulus and a woman repeatedly posing a danger with her allegiance to Antony. Even after he excised these societal sores, new ones emerged in their place as if reflecting the political body, always hemorrhaging somewhere due to an excess of blood. That's why Augustus yearned for leisure and sought relief from his strenuous tasks by longing for and contemplating it. This was the prayer of the man who could fulfill the prayers of others. 5.1. Marcus Cicero was caught in a tumultuous storm amongst characters like Catiline, Clodius, Pompey, and Crassus, 
declared enemies on one side, unreliable friends on the other. He was tossed about with the ship of state, which he attempted to stabilize, even as it was sinking, only to get swept away eventually. He found no comfort in prosperity, nor could he withstand hardship. How often he lamented over his own consulship, which he had praised relentlessly, though not unjustifiably. Z. His words, extracted from a letter penned to Atticus after the elder Pompey's defeat, and while his son was still striving to resurrect his battered forces in Spain, are nothing short of pitiful. You ask, he writes, what I'm doing here, I'm dwelling in my Tusculan estate, semi-free. Afterwards, he makes other declarations where he laments his past life, voices his grievances about the present, and shows despair for the future. Cicero referred to himself as half-free. Needless to say, the wise man would never employ such a demeaning term. He will never be half-free, but will always experience complete and pure freedom. Not subject to any restrictions, he will be his own master and rise above everyone else. After all, what can be superior to the man who transcends fate?